We were a tired nation. It was the third year of the bloody Civil War. And it was January 1st, 1863, when President Abraham Lincoln signed and issued the Emancipation Proclamation. The proclamation declared that all persons once held as slaves are and henceforth shall be free. They're free. Free to pursue happiness. Free to have equal dignity. They're liberated from their old slave masters and their old bondages. They're free. So I want you to think of that in the back of your mind because my sermon title, there you see it, Our Emancipation Proclamation. All right, so keep that in mind. We're going to look at Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 12 today. If you have your scriptures, it would be great if you turn there. It's a great passage. Remember last week we spent time in chapter 5. And let me just compare those for a second. Chapter 5 has to do with our justification before God. How are we made just legally in the eyes of God so that we don't assume the penalty of sin? How do we get right with God? How are we justified? So for us, justification comes at that moment where you pour yourself in faith out to Christ. You trust in his saving work of the cross. And you, in one blink of an eye, transform from the old Adam to the new Adam who is Christ your Savior. It's a one-time event, justification. Today, in chapter 6, though, we're dealing with sanctification. It is that process after justification of slowly growing into God's grace, slowly overcoming the power of sin in our lives, slowly yielding ourselves in holiness to God. So we want to look at three things. First of all, what does it mean to be truly justified? There are some critics here who don't understand Paul's theory of justification. Secondly, why is sanctification taking so long? I mean, it seems like I don't make any progress sometimes. Third question, what can I do about it? So let's start with number one. What does it truly mean to be justified in the eyes of God, the moment of salvation? Well, we see the critics. Look at verse one. What shall we say then, Paul says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So some people are hearing last week's message and they're thinking, all right, you're saved by grace through faith. It doesn't have to do anything with your earning salvation. It doesn't have to do with your good works. It's all the work of Jesus. Remember, five times in six verses last week, he said, it's free, it's free, it's free, it's free. It's a free gift of grace. See what they're saying? Well, if it's a free gift, why should I do anything? In fact, if it's good and it's from God and it's a blessing, why don't I sin more so that grace will abound more? Remember in 520 last week, Paul said that. He said, when we sin all the more, grace abounds all the more. So his critics come back and say, well, I'll just sin all the more. I don't have to clean my life up. I'll live by the Epicurean code. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. So that was their, their idea. Sin boldly, that grace may abound more boldly. But look at what Paul says in verse 2. By no means. Now that's not strong enough. The Greek is meganoito. And meganoito means something to the effect of, heck no. And because I want to keep this PG-13, I'm not going to tell you what it really means. But I'll let your mind go there means more than even heck no. 
All right? So this is an emphatic, an imperative. It's a vehement declaration that you can't sin, that grace may abound, because you don't understand justification, if that's what you say in your heart. You don't know a thing about being saved. Sometimes we treat salvation trivially, even today, don't we? Sometimes we treat salvation in Christ as though it is a get-out-of-hell-free card. That our lives in no way need to align with the holiness of Jesus. As long as we go to heaven, let us sin that grace may abound. Sometimes we have those silly questions. Let me be justified. I want Jesus as my Savior, but I don't want him as Lord because if he's master, he may make me change. How many times have you heard somebody pondering Christianity only to say, all right, now, if I come to Jesus, what are the things i got to give up in my life? That's such a weak, feeble, frail, thin idea of what salvation is. And that's what Paul says. You don't even understand. What salvation is, what justification is, is union with Jesus. Look at verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's the key. That's what salvation is. It's union. You don't ask silly questions about if I sin so that grace may abound. You're not worried about that. You're not looking to get a ticket to heaven. You're looking for union in Jesus. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that all who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That old life is dead. Verse 4, we're buried, therefore, with Christ in baptism into his death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. See how much grander, much more beautiful, how much richer that is to understand that that's what Jesus wants from us? Something's got to die. The old Adam must die so that Christ may rise up in the newness of life. Hebrews 2.10, Paul says, God sent Jesus into the world so that he might bring many sons and daughters, you and me, to the glory of the Father. Isn't that so much more rich than a ticket to heaven? <laughs> C.S. Lewis put it this way in Mere Christianity. If we let God do this process of sanctification, he will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a god or a goddess. Dazzling, radiant, an immortal creature, pulsating through his rich energy and joy and wisdom and love that we cannot now imagine. That's, that's the purpose of salvation. He wants to make us a bright, stainless mirror that reflects back the glory of God, his boundless power, his delight, his goodness. And he finally says that this process of sanctification will be a very long process. And in parts, it'll be very painful because it requires transformation. But he says that's what we're in for when we get justification. Nothing less. Nothing less. God wants to make of us radiant creatures to live in his glory forever. It's union with Jesus that we're after, not a get-out-of-hell-free card. But so often we, we have that trivial idea of what salvation means. C.S. Lewis goes on in, in his his uh, sermon, The Weight of Glory, and says, you know, he says, it's not that the Lord finds that our desires for salvation are too strong, they're too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition. 
when an infinite joy is offered to us. And like ignorant children who want to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what's meant by God's offer of a holiday at sea. It's union with Christ. The old life is dead. The new life has come. Think of that union as marriage. When you wed somebody, you're together, one flesh. And if it's a good marriage, not all marriages are like this, then you begin to share in the common values of your household. You have common aspirations for your future. You have common goals and common hope. And, and you commit in servitude and servanthood one to another with common devotion. And you grow in the family likeness together. That's what it means to be in Christ, to put on Christ, to grow in that family likeness together because we have union. We are in Christ. Think of it this way. I, I'm, I've never grafted anything, but I've got some grafted plants and trees in my yard. And the idea, I think, is this. The upper part's called the scion, and the lower part is called the rootstock. And you take the scion and graft it onto the rootstock. So the DNA of the rootstock makes the scion better than it ever has been. It gives it new characteristics. For example, hardiness and drought tolerance or cold tolerance or disease resistance. The rootstock is making the scion more beautiful day by day. That's sanctification, friends. Jesus is our rootstock. Any wonder why he says, I'm the vine and you're the branches? Apart from me, you can bear no fruit? Union is the key. So St. Paul concludes, look at verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. That is our emancipation proclamation. You don't have to live under the old master. You're set free. So question number two. If I'm set free from sin, why do I keep sinning? Why does this process take so long? Please hear this, every one of you. I'm the chief of all sinners in this church. And even the most devoted, dedicated disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ in these church uh, chairs today is going to sin. It, the struggle's real, and it still continues. But why? Well, here's the deal. You are fully emancipated. Believe God's word. You're fully free from sin in your core being. The Holy Spirit is truly transforming you from one glory to another. Everything that will be in heaven with God is now transformed, and it's real. So why do we sin? Because there's one part of you that is not redeemed yet. And then Paul calls it your flesh, your body. So your soul is fully emancipated, redeemed with Jesus, but your body continues to sin. And Paul, when he says the lust of the flesh... He's not talking about what we read into it as Americans. He's not talking about pornography, though pornography is a lust of the flesh. He's not talking about sex outside of marriage, which that too is a lust of the flesh. What Paul means in this is a Greek term called epithumia. Epithumia means an inordinate desire for something in the created world that you put above Jesus. Anything you may put above Jesus. So sex, yeah, drugs, alcohol, yeah, those things. But get this, your grandchildren, if you love them, are devoted to them, and more passionate toward them than you are to Jesus, that's epithemia. Your children, if they are the center of your household and Jesus is not, that's epithemia. Whatever it may be, it could be your job, 
could be a very good thing. Like, like looking for that next job that's going to fill your heart and satisfy your passions. That's epithemia. Your drive for more money. That's a good thing. But if it becomes a God thing, that's epithemia. And Paul says our flesh is going to continue to cry out until we're in heaven. Romans 8, 23. Paul says, and not only the creation is waiting total renewal and redemption, but we ourselves. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit, he says, yet we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. The one thing that's not fully redeemed. And our old slave masters, that old Adam, will call us back sometimes. Verse 6 today, look at that. For we know that our old self was crucified with Jesus in order that this body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we are no longer to be enslaved by sin. That's an important word, slavery. Remember, emancipation in Jesus, slavery to the old Adam of sin. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great evangelical preacher of London in the 20th century, he preached a sermon, several sermons on Romans. He loved the book. And in that book, he said, this is why sin keeps dragging you back. He said, imagine Emancipation Proclamation. And the day after that, you see your old slave master that once held you in bondage. You're going to tremble in fear before him. You're going to feel all those feelings you had before when he dominated your life. In fact, if he orders you to go do something, you're probably going to do it. Because it's habitual. It's ingrained You've lived a lifetime as a slave, and now you're free legally, but it still feels like you're in bondage. He said, that's where we are in sanctification. That's why sin keeps dragging us back to our old masters. We are free, truly free, and yet our flesh still is not fully free. We tremble when we see our old slave masters, and sometimes they seduce us back into bondage. So what can you do about it? What can you do about it? Look at verse 11. Therefore, you must consider, that's the important word, yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider, remember, everything that I've told you, Paul is saying, put into application. Put it into practice that you're no longer a slave. You are freed in Christ Jesus. Remember that. Well, how do we remember it? Paul says in Galatians 5, 24, that those who belong in Jesus are about the business of crucifying the flesh with all of its passions and desires daily, crucifying the old Adam, putting into practice our freedom in Jesus. Remember, first of all, you need to be in the Word. How, how are you going to receive sanctification if you're not reminded in God's Word, not only of who you are, but whose you are, that you're now a child of God. You've been released from bondage. Your emancipation proclamation has been declared on your behalf. Colossians 3 says, you are dead. And your life is now hid with God in Christ Jesus. That's your proclamation. You're free. Read the scriptures. Remind yourself. Number two, Holy Communion. Holy Eucharist. People outside of our church ask me all the time, why do you Anglicans take communion every single Sunday? Doesn't it get boring? Doesn't it get old? I said, well, don't we need to remember? Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. What are we remembering? That he died on Calvary and we died with him. That he rose again on the third day in victory and that we rose with him. 
That's our identity. We've got to remember that through his body and his blood. Number three, we pray daily to receive this new identity. The newness of life in which we now walk, as Paul says, we praise God that we have been released from our former slave masters in sin and now can live a new life of grace in God. And in those prayers, number four, we ask God to send more and more of the Holy Spirit. Friends, if you don't have the Holy Spirit working on your behalf, sanctification will never take place. You don't have a partner in God who lives within you, you'll never get better. You'll never have victory over sin. In fact, that same Martin Lloyd-Jones was preaching through Romans and got to chapter 14, and he read these words, joy in the Holy Spirit. And he stopped and said, I don't know enough about that to preach to my congregation. I don't want to tell them the wrong thing. So he took time off and poured himself into it and wanted to understand it, and he, he flipped it to its many facets, joy in the Holy Spirit. And finally, when he was ready to preach, he preached this. He said, do you know anything of this fire? If you do not, confess it to God and acknowledge it. Repent and ask God to send the Spirit and his love into you until you are melted and moved. Don't you love that? Melted and moved by the Spirit. Until you're filled with divine love, to know his love is in you. And rejoice that you're now a child of God. And to look to the hope of coming glory. That day when even our bodies, our flesh, will be redeemed. So remember your emancipation proclamation. On 33 AD, Jesus stretched out his arms upon the cross and said, It is finished. I have paid your debt. Your slave price has been paid. Go in peace. You're free now. And in John chapter 8, 34, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. That's God's house. Only the son remains forever. Now here's the last verse, and it's for you and for me. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Let us pray.